Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Collision Course, The Kingdom of God and the Status Quo of the World. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 10th, 2012. A few months ago, I watched an interview on the PBS NewsHour with 94-year-old Stefan Hessel. In 2010, Hessel published an essay in France called Time for Outrage, Indignez-vous. In book form, it measures just four by six inches. You can read the entire essay over one cup of coffee. The original print run was only 6,000 copies. But as I write today, Time for Outrage has sold 3.5 million copies and been translated into a dozen languages. Stefan Hessel is a Jewish concentration camp survivor, a proud member of the French resistance against the Nazis, a UN diplomat instrumental in writing the Declaration of Human Rights, and a fervent human rights advocate. As he puts it, I've always sided with the dissidents and against every form of dehumanization. His Jeremiad is a plea to recover a sense of outrage in our own day. Why? Because as he puts it, the wealthy have installed their slaves in the highest spheres of the state. The banks are privately owned. They are concerned only with profits. They have no interest in the common good. The gap between rich and poor is the widest it's ever been. The pursuit of riches and the spirit of competition are encouraged and even celebrated. Hessel challenges his readers to move from indifference to indignation. He writes, you must engage. Your humanity demands it. His protest of the status quo of money, politics, and power reminds me of one of his French contemporaries and fellow members of the resistance, the sociologist and Christian Jacques Ellul of Bordeaux. Ellul once put it this way, to exist is to resist. The readings this week describe two alternatives, mimicking the status quo of the world or living on the lunatic fringe in the kingdom of God. One story is about politics. The other story is about family life. 1 Samuel 8 describes the emergence of Israel's centralized power. The people demanded the status quo. They said, we want a king like the other nations. Samuel objected to their desire to mimic the pagan nations. He went to God in prayer, but he was finally rebuffed by the people. No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. So he ceded to their request but warn them of the harsh consequences to follow. The government would conscript their children for wars. 
make them domestic slaves, confiscate their land, and levy exorbitant taxes. And so the newly anointed Saul did all this and more. He was a war president. We read, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. He was also a war profiteer, who after defeating the Amalekites, took for himself the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. And he did all this all under the pretext of religious piety. We also read, Saul set up a monument to his own honor. Does this ancient story of the political status quo not sound tragically modern? Saul's successors were even worse. The political panorama of First and Second Kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen. In the 400 years from the death of David, to Israel's exile to Babylon in 586 BC. Only two kings received unqualified approval by the narrator, Hezekiah and Josiah. Otherwise, with monotonous regularity, over 30 times he renders the ominous judgment that a king, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, end quote. Instead of the glorification or celebration of political power, his history of politics is uniformly pessimistic. The status quo held firm, and people paid the price. In the Gospel this week, Jesus subverts the status quo. His own family thought he had gone mad. He's out of his mind, they said. And judged by the standard of the status quo, they were right. We're totally ignorant about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, except for one revealing snippet by Luke, who tells the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. On the return trip home, his parents discovered that Jesus was missing from their caravan of family and friends. After a second day to return to Jerusalem to look for him, on the third day they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. When his mother scolded him, it became apparent that Jesus was not accidentally lost, but that he had deliberately stayed behind. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Even as a child, there was a palpable tension between Jesus' filial identity with God the Father and obedience to his earthly parents. Eventually, his obedience to God provoked a radical rupture with his family. In his late 20s, Jesus deserted his family and joined the movement of his eccentric cousin, John the Baptizer. John was a prophet of radical descent, so much so that his detractors said that he had a demon. Whereas John's father had been part of the religious establishment as a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. 
There he dressed in animal skins, ate insects and wild honey, preached and baptized. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John challenged the religious and political status quo with his anti-establishment message. By joining John's fringe movement, Jesus did the same. After his radical rupture with his family by identifying with the desert troublemaker to the point of submitting to his baptism, Jesus' family tried to apprehend him. The village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. When his mother and brothers found him, he rebuffed them and redefined family. Who are my mother and my brothers? He gestured to those who had gathered around him. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so, just as with John, they said that Jesus was demon-possessed. The accusations of madness and demon possession remind me of another desert dweller, St. Anthony the Great, who lived from 251 to 356. Anthony was an uneducated cop born into a Christian family of peasant farmers. When he was 18, his parents died, leaving him to care for his younger sister. Six months later, he was reflecting on Acts 4.35 and how the early believers sold their possessions and gave the proceeds to the apostles. When he got to church that same day, the gospel reading was Matthew 19.21. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Anthony put his sister into the care of a convent of nuns, sold his possessions, and attached himself to an ascetic on the fringe of his village. Later, he went deep into the desert by himself. People followed him there for advice, though, and for a while he offered counsel. But later still, he returned to his life of solitary spirituality. We can imagine that people thought he was mad. But Anthony put it this way in one of his famous aphorisms. A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, You are mad. You are not like us. So we have a choice to live on the lunatic fringe in the kingdom of God, where even the most basic values of family and politics are radically redefined, or to support the status quo with its predictably oppressive consequences. For further reflections, consider Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And for further reflection on this theme, I highly recommend the poem by Wendell Berry, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer 
Liberation Front. It's one of my favorite poems. Listen to Wendell Berry. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbor and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, my friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to the carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. The Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. For books this week, we've posted a review of the book I just mentioned in my essay, Stefan Hessel, Time for Outrage, Indigné-Vous. I won't read it again. For film, I review a title called Eames, The Architect and the Painter from 2000 
and 11. That's E-A-M-E-S. This isn't a great film, but its subject matter is so fascinating that it's well worth watching. The design duo of Charles Eames, an architect, and his wife, Ray, a painter, who together were the single most influential industrial artists in the America of their generation. In the post-war era of the 1940s, they shaped and in turn reflected America's emerging suburban middle-class values, especially through their mass-produced Eames chair, done in conjunction with Herman Miller furniture, some form of which is still in almost every house and building. He said, we wanted to make the best for the most for the least. From 1943 to 1988, their design studio in Venice, California, was one of the most creative addresses on earth. Chairs were only the beginning, though. There were toys, 150,000 splints for the military, photography, national exhibitions, and especially films for dozens of corporate clients, like the 1957 The Information Machine, Creative Man and the Data Processor, done for IBM to humanize the computer. Actor James Franco narrates this film, which incorporates interviews with curators, critics, historians, designers, Eames Studio employees, a few family members, and the biographer Pat Kirkham. Charles Eames died in 1978 of a heart attack, while Ray died 10 years later to the day in 1988. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. The title again, Eames, the architect and the painter. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Origen, who lived from 185 to 254. It's from his book, Against Celsus, Book 8, Chapter 73. And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and are led to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not be led astray by them. And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 10th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.